William Sloan Coffin tells a couple of stories that Lincoln rendered when he had some encounters with people who didn't quite know their place in the scheme of things, who were fairly arrogant and uh, needed to learn a little bit about humility. Um, he recalled several dispatches that he received from General McClellan. You may remember that this was a young general who would ultimately run for president against him the next time around. And he said that McClellan always began his messages um, with this statement, headquarters in the saddle. And Lincoln remarked to some of those his aides around him that most people, it's strange, he says, that the general keeps his headquarters where most people prefer to keep their hindquarters. But worse than generals for him were preachers. And there was an occasion, he said, when there was an especially obnoxious group of these people, I can't imagine what he's talking about. And he said he turned to an aide and told, and, and told him this story. He said, um, there was a little boy who had created it, sculpted the church out of mud, and it had all the details. It was filled with pews and a pulpit. And when he was asked, where's the preacher? The boy replied, I ran out of mud. <laughs> what does it mean for us to know our place and what are the implications when we don't? When it comes to God's will for our lives, when it comes, comes to the way that we live our lives in creation, when we seek to be people who say we're godly people, but at the same time hit these points in which we are simply acting as if we're unaware of what that relationship means. There's a, a, a story, a video, a, a scenario that occurred in some of the work I've been doing and writing and researching and involving Paul Tillich. And Tillich, interestingly, was someone who was willing to write about politics. He wrote, I think I've shared with you, uh, Voice of America speeches for over two years, over 114 speeches. He wrote weekly broadcasts of the Voice of America. By the night, that was in the 40s, of course, and by the 1960s, he occasionally still had opportunity, was invited to do so. And interestingly, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of FDR, so prominent, such a significant public figure from the presidency onwards, still in the 1960s was active, and hosted a program for three years called The Prospect of Humankind. And in one of those programs, she invited Tillich, as well as a couple of uh, journalists, as well as Henry Kissinger, who at that time was still a professor at Harvard. And they were discussing the whole issue of whether, and this was the midst of the, the crisis in which the Soviets were trying to push into Berlin. And she was asking the question, is there ever a time in which we reconsider using nuclear weapons? And the only person in the conversation who felt like that would be devastatingly wrong was Tillich. The others actually considered that as a possibility in the heart of Europe as a way to try to stymie or to use as a threat against the Soviets. What does it mean for us to have been in a position in which people would have actually considered that? What is our place? There's a journalist and author by the name of Taran Keshbao, an Indian author, Asian Indian author, 
who was willing to do some pretty courageous reporting in the first decade of our new millennium. And he would get into trouble. He would work for news organizations that did not like him reporting on things that the government was permitting to happen. In this case, it had to do with the government permitting violence against, I mean, deadly violence against uh, members of the Muslim population in India. He made this statement, he said, you know, in India, because we do not redress, that is, we don't recognize when wrong happens and respond to that, when we do not redress, we repeat. Because we repeat and we repeat, we are never redeemed. And so he was someone who was willing to advocate for that. Now, the deal is this, when you're an advocate, you also have to have a sense of self and the knows that you don't always have all the answers. And so it was really disturbing when he and his, having been part of a journal that really advocated for justice issues, one of them being sexual exploitation, that he himself was accused later of precisely that. So what does it mean to have consistency? What does it mean for us to be people who know what is the right path, but live that with a, in a way that has integrity? It's very hard for us as people to do that. What does it mean to be consistent? And Isaiah is very interesting in calling the people of Judah to have a full knowledge of things. Now you, you remember that passage perhaps in which um, it, it reads, Isaiah offers, that the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And interestingly, that being quoted in the gospel as if somehow in a special way Jesus was the fulfillment of that. The Christ was the fulfillment of that. What's interesting in Isaiah, what's going on, is that Isaiah is all after the political leaders of the time. People constantly in our day, and at various different points in history, have tried to keep religion from being political. Don't be political with your theology and your religion. Only problem is there's politics all over the place in the Bible. And you see this in, in Isaiah. I regularly remind you of this because it's really, really important to remember. But I, because Isaiah begins with an indictment against bad political leaders, and more than that, exploiters. And this is just a reminder of those verses in Isaiah 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Well, Sodom is gone. But that's a metaphor for the quality of leadership going on at the time in Judah. Listening, listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So the, the culture itself afflicted. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed feasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. These are all actions of worship. When do you, when do you become before me? Who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more bringing offerings as futile, incense as an abomination, new moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation, I cannot endure. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. This is in prayer. God, hiding the eyes of God from the people. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. 
And in case you don't understand what God thinks about this and what he knows he's going to run into with Isaiah, you go to chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, and you hear him saying this to Isaiah. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, the king, you and your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool and the highway to the fuller's pool. In case you didn't know, he wanted them to be specifically knowing where he had to confront him. And say to him, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, because of the fierce anger of your enemies. He's trying to get Isaiah to have the courage to confront a king who is cowardice and won't stand for justice in order to face those who are facing him now. And if you look at the end of Isaiah 9, you see the same sorts of language. There is hope for the future in Isaiah 9, but it is a terrible present. And he's calling the people, the leaders, and the people to justice. But once again, as we think about this, realize the great important teaching that if you are going to try to put yourself in the position of the accuser, the target of your accusation has to be yourself. Great teaching, another teaching of Tillich. Aim the questioning suspicion at your own way of thinking. Get that straightened out, something closer to pure, and then turn to the other. So there's this amazing big picture message in the, in the prophecy of Isaiah that is then echoed and directed towards immediate needs in the gospel. The word that comes up twice in that passage from the gospel is the word immediately. Isn't that a great and important word? We don't have time to mess around. There's a sense in which we're seeing there. The passage that I read today was right after the temptation. The great modelers or schedulers of the lectionary will help us or have us deal with the temptation in a couple of weeks later. Now they must focus here in Jesus' beginning of his ministry. And there's a sense in which, after he finishes, he immediately goes to it. And when he calls those who are involved, he wants to be involved, the apostles, they immediately drop everything and follow. They respond to the call and go. There's a sense in which there's an immediacy of Christ's impact because he's doing ministry and changing lives. And also an immediacy of the response of the followers. This is urgent stuff. When we see the brokenness in the world, it's really, really important for us to see that we must act when we see brokenness afflicting that which is around us at all levels of reality. Whether it's human beings, whether it's what human beings are doing to creation and therefore the wounds that have to happen, have to be dealt with because of our ignorance or our willful arrogance. Knowing that is important. And the starting point of that is rejecting the arrogance that was manifest by the political leaders that was attacked in Isaiah. What does it mean for us to get our place established? What does it mean for me to realize that I'm one out of seven plus billion human creatures? I mean, can you imagine the trillions of other living beings that are, are part of this biosphere, this, this thing that gives us physical life? This, um, a miracle of a planet so spaced against it with the sun, with all the resources that enables me to live. How do I get my act together to know my place in that creation? It seems to me reflecting on some details is important. 
I was thinking that as I was preparing for today that maybe there's this little tension between Luther and Calvin, though, that I have to worry about. Because, you know, I've talked to you about the fact that the first thesis of, of, of Luther's 95 ones that he posted in Wittenberg, the church there, the first one is that we understand that the whole of life, of, of the life of believers, should be repentance. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's sort of a downer to start with that. And it's interesting because in Calvin's thinking, and especially the way we have it in the Westminster Confession, it says the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Now that's a good starting point, it seems to me. What does it mean for us to start with the sovereignty of the God who allows us to be in the midst of this reality and to be amazed by that and to take joy in that as the starting point? And it seems like there's a chasm over which we need a bridge talking to the kids about it. But the deal is this. Calvin also taught that human nature is a constant factory of idolatry. Isn't that interesting? He knows that our nature is, we may have an intended purpose by God in creation, but we get mixed up repeatedly. And we kind of, we're constantly tempted to see our viewpoint as the viewpoint. And to see our national perspective as the world perspective that matters. Versus knowing our place as limited in perspective. And both of these guys, these significant figures in our history, understand that. What does it mean, once again, to know our intended place, to know the possibilities that we can have as human beings, but also to know when we trip up and how do we get out of it? Now, other traditions, religious traditions, have different ways of thinking about this, but I think knocks us off of the pedestal but that doesn't always maintain our, uh, our sense of place that God wants us to have, our intended place. There's a great uh, pilgrimage spot in Buddhism in which folks are on their knees for miles going up to the pilgrimage spot, it's in Taiwan, and then staying on their knees to climb these many steps to get up to this pilgrimage place. And I don't know, I understand the intent of that, that, that action of humility, of getting us to see that, but, does it get us to the glory of what God's intent is for creation and humanity? I think more about things like this that I think affirm it. I think about our growth and our knowledge of the universe. I bring up pictures of space periodically. This is an amazing thing that I heard of this week. That scientists wonder, as they try to explain what is that energy that was the Big Bang that created this ever-expanding reality that we know as the universe, larger and larger, further and further out. And as they try to bring it all together, they are speculating that we have multiple universes, not just a few of them, 10 to the 500 power, that number of universes. I mean, I don't even know if there's a word for that. The Greeks probably can figure something out for that in terms of their language, but it's an amazing thing to consider we're small enough in the universe as we experience it. If, they, if there's this un, innumerable number of universes, where does that under, uh, lead us to understand our place? Is that interesting? The thinking of and speculating and, and theorizing and trying to confirm it, using our knowledge can also lead us to maybe a bit of humility in terms of place. And it's something that echoes what Muir told us, John Muir, Somehow human beings are hitched, and all of reality, everything in it, is hitched to everything else 
in the universe. We have a place, but man, it's a bigger place. It's a bigger context that we're a part of. And we have a role in doing our thing in a just, loving way in that place. Did you hear the story this week that was reported of this uh, father and his son in Salt Lake City who have a weekly lunch date that they set up. And they set it up with what they see to be the perfect person for it that weekend. And it's always a homeless person. They, they, they have conversations and decide on, on Saturday morning who that person might be and take this person out. And what is the process? The process is to simply have meal fellowship, a very biblical thing. Look in the Bible at meals in which Jesus has conversations and just take down walls. Meal fellowship in which they eat and they listen. They listen and see if there's something that is going on in their per the person's life that they can have an impact to be a healing presence. And they're hoping, hoping against hope, that they will be able to start a movement that they call Project Empathy. What does it mean to realize that somehow a life story has led to this person being in crisis and that we each have a life story that amazingly can lead in a direction that we would not want it to go? And wouldn't we want to experience love that might be empowering enough for us to be able to change our lives? So I leave you with this guy. The prophets... Christ calls us with an immediacy and an urgency to go for it, to be healers in the world. We are responsible for that. As I told the kids, city of Pittsburgh, all these bridges, always kept that, uh, for better or for worse, quite honestly, that image before you, you wouldn't get anywhere. It's interesting to me to see that pattern in a time in which since 9-11, we have grown in a world from having, before that terrible event, seven significant bridges and separation of separation in the world. Not bridges, seven walls of separation. We have grown from that to having 77 walls of separation. And I can't imagine that Christ would be pleased with that. We're the people of 70 times seven. People who forgive 70 times seven, infinitely. People called to be healers. People called to be ones who muster the courage to challenge our leaders. People called to follow the difficult path of the Christ. This week, that we make that our daily intent, Lord, to where, to whom shall we go? To what place should we aim? We aim. In what situation should we act? What should your word be in this moment? Let us pray. This day, O oh Lord, may our daily pattern be one that we contemplate as we enter the week. May we awaken each morning with the question, Christ, where do I go? What do I do in your name? And Lord, grant us the courage of having asked that question to answer it and then to do it. 
We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.